If you have your Bibles, you can open them to uh, Matthew chapter 5. If you don't, there's a passage printed in your bulletin that we're going to read today. uh, Or you can use a a digital on your phones if that's uh, what you like to use. So here, a couple things. We've been talking about evangelism for the next few weeks. And and, um, the reason we're doing that is because I think there's, we need to reach into our community. We need to reach the people around us with the good news of the gospel. We all feel that pressure, at least most of us do, that we need to be witnessing or sharing or whatever you want to call it with others. And while that is important, while you are required, obligated to do that, to share the gospel of our great king, I think that a lot of external trappings have been added on to that that we've talked about over these weeks that can actually become a stumbling block and lead us into despair. Uh, So Dawson and I talked a lot about this and we thought, well, let's do a short series on evangelism and use a resource that is just um, uh, remarkable in that it, it codifies and explains the vision that Christ the King has had for 20 years, even before I ever read anything from Dr. Jerem Bars, uh, this was our, um, our posture towards the world and community. We used to say, all of life is worship, not merely Sunday morning. All of life is worship. Sunday morning is special. It's that one day in seven where we come together, we hear the word, we pray, we sing our songs, we take part in the Lord's table, we observe the sacrament, we do all these things together as a community. But even when you're at work or doing recreation, where you live, work, and play, whatever, the things that you're doing are to be filled and imbued, if you will, with worship. In other words, there's a God-centered focus to our lives. Uh, It's just there. And we are always conscious of it. Sin notwithstanding. Sin is another thing, another day, another sermon. But I think you all understand that even when you're sinning, hopefully you're repenting and turning back to God. So even in that, it can be God-centered and must be God-centered. So we're doing this series on evangelism. And our posture has been to say we need to live faithfully. This is Jerem Barr's, I think, his main thing, is that we're our very presence in this earth. You don't say anything, don't do anything. Just the fact that you're here and you are... uh, Your allegiance is directed to your great king, your love. The love of your life is that man who gave his life for you, who died on a cross, who who filled us with his blessed Holy Spirit and feeds us week by week in our heart by faith through his sacrament. All of these things work together. And so just your very presence. Now, that's not enough. We've got to do more. And that's why we're talking about. But listen to this, and then I'll read the passage from Jerem. Jesus does not want Christians to retreat from the world and from non-Christians. He wants us to live 
before men. You'll hear that in the passage in a moment. Many of us are tempted to hide our light, to make ourselves secure and comfortable by surrounding ourselves with Christian friends and Christian culture. But this is not what Jesus has in mind for us. His two images of salt and light, this is in the passage we'll read, very familiar. These two images demand a life that is to be lived in the world and applied to the world. Out in the darkness where there is no light. Out where the savoring salt is needed to make food tasty. These images and Jesus' use of them requires Christians to be in the world and not simply in the church. They require us to be with non-Christians and not simply fellow believers. Faithful biblical evangelism cannot take place unless Christians take these words of Jesus to heart. So let's read this passage. It's so familiar, but uh, starting with verse 13, hear the word of God. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste or savor, it becomes foolish, insipid, tasteless. How shall its saltiness be restored. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under men's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And the second part of the passage is from Dawson. Could you give me a bottle of water? I'm sorry. I dry through it today, folks. We live in the desert, right? I mean, what, what were we thinking <laughs> moving out here? The second passage is from 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at that one. Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, this is the word of the Lord. All right, so I said, Jerome Barr said, we've got to be in the world. We've got to be with non-believers. We've got to be participating in the world. And immediately, this should make you feel uncomfortable. How do you do that? Christians have struggled with this for 2,000 years. The nation of Israel struggled with it for all of their history. And the people of God before Moses struggled with it as well, the patriarchs. How do we get, how do we get around other people and not get contaminated by them? Not get polluted by them? Be able to carry out the mission which goes back to Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17 of Genesis. This movement that was caused by sin, we are cast out of Eden 
And then, but God doesn't stop with that. He, he reasserts Himself. He erupts. He comes back into the world and He said, we are going to restart and we're going to make something new, something better. Whatever was in the garden, the new garden, Revelation 21 and 22, is going to be much better. Not a cloud floating, you know, in the guitars. Not that. It's going to be a new creation that, that we can't even get our head around, but it's going to be glorious and good and encompass everything and all things. So to live evangelistically puts us squarely in tension with the world. And this is going to require a very singular focus on two things. The person and the work of Jesus Christ. Where the church gets messed up is that they take their eyes off. They might keep one eye. Most conservative churches keep one eye on Jesus. And the other one is looking around, you know, what else is out there? How can we help Jesus? How can we give some assistance to Him? And folks, he has just done, it has done nothing but cause the church and the people of God trouble. And that's why uh, he, you have shepherds. I've been reading Jeremiah. This is in my yearly reading. And, and I'm just stunned by the warnings this prophet is giving and how they just absolutely would not listen to a thing he said. And I think sometimes in the church we're kind of like that. We just don't listen. Well, I'm hoping that you'll listen. And I'm trusting that these words will make their way down into your soul. Living intention uh, has been discussed and written about by many authors. Recently about, well, I think it's 2010, uh, a scholar, a Christian scholar named James Davidson Hunter wrote a very, very widely read book called How to Change the World, Living in Faithful Presence. When it first came out, it was, I mean, everybody was saying, you either said it was a great, this is the greatest thing, we've got to get our heads around this, this is the way forward for the church, or you hated it and you said, a hunter's a, a heretic, he's the worst. And that has been going on. And a lot of what James Davidson Hunter wrote, I don't know if, I don't know if it's applicable anymore because the world is changing so rapidly. So you have to read him in context being... What is it, 13 years ago? Is that right? My math right? 2010, how did 10 plus 3 plus 10? Yeah, 13 years ago. Imagine how the world has changed. Incredible. Well, in his book, he did say some things that I feel are pertinent to what we're talking about. And he talked about Christians' desire for centuries to um, pursue purity from culture, purity from culture. In other words, there was a a fear and anxiety that built up, a, a, a feeling like I need to withdraw, I need to get out of the world, I need to move away. Now this goes back, way back into the first, second century because there was a monastic movement, the ascetics, uh, the, you know, they went and lived in caves and, uh, uh, you know, sat up on poles. Not really, that was here in the United States, on flagpoles. But they would, they would try to isolate themselves from the world, everything in the world. And the testimony of these early church 
uh, people and the people that were around them was that it didn't work. In fact, it exacerbated the problem. When they're in the cave and they've just got a, a little fire going, all they can think about is illicit sex and money and power and fame and glory. They just could hardly keep that. They were better off before they went in the cave. As hard as that may be to believe. Well, we struggle with that. How do you live? Purity from culture. The second one that, that Hunter identifies is in an endeavor to be relevant to culture. And this is what you see in a lot of, a lot of times, particularly in the ch- turn of last century with the liberal church wanting to accommodate the world, modern world, And so it started giving up things, saying, well, the Bible doesn't really mean this, and it really is not saying that. And they start to equivocate on every kind of thing that you can imagine. And before too long, the churches in the United States and elsewhere were all you heard in a sermon. You could take a sermon from those days, and even sadly today as well, take a sermon and you could go into a mosque or a synagogue or into a... a, an Elks Club, I don't know, you all remember what the Elks Club was, these fraternal organizations. You could go to the Rotary Club. You could go to any organization and give that sermon, and people would say, wonderful. That's such an inspiring word. That's so motivational. That moves me. But there's nothing about Jesus, nothing about the... Oh, if, if there was something about Jesus, he's a good guy. Good guy? I don't know. So there's this kind of a creeping insanity. R.C. Sproul wrote a book that some of you may have written. Does God believe in atheists or something like that? It's really a good, I don't think it's in print anymore. Relevant to culture, we compromise, we accommodate, we acquiesce. And then the third one is Christians become defensive against culture. And that's, I think we see this in our day. There's a hostility, uh, an unhealthy aggression, often political. We become the warriors in the culture war. We are pushing back and saying we are going to demand from our non-believing neighbors and government and all this. We're going to demand that they adhere to our ways of thinking and to our laws, and to our rules. And nothing wrong with that. We should be salt and light, like we read. But how we carry it out, very flawed. Very flawed. So Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom people, A new humanity. He does this in Matthew chapter 5 through the Beatitudes. These are not things that are just kind of nice. He's saying this is the new humanity. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. He's not looking for compromise. He's not looking for aggression. He's looking for people that are the salt of the earth. In fact, He's going to make them the salt of the earth. He doesn't say that you carry this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. That's not what he's talking about. You yourself are the light of the world. You yourself are the salt of the earth. Why? Because he's made you that. That's what you are. 
And how that applies to evangelism is because you are that. Not that you have to do something, although you do. Jesus elaborates on this kingdom idea, this kingdom people. He, he, he fills his preaching with it in the five discourses in Matthew. There's five distinct discourses. This passage we read is from the first one, what's commonly called the Beatitudes. And what he's teaching us, listen to this, put this in your mind and don't forget it. You are living in tension with the world by design. God designed us so that we would be in tension with the world. So we would be uncomfortable in and around the world. But he also made it necessary. We must be there. Because if we're not there, what will you have? You will have rot and dark. You will not have salt and you will not have light. The very things that this world needs are what you are and what you bring to the world around you. The tension is real. It's difficult. I think G.K. Chesterton said Christianity has... Uh, not been tried and found wanting. Christianity has been found difficult and left untried. Make no mistake, this is no rose garden being a Christian. I tell you week by week, sometimes maybe a little strongly, but hey, this this is not the answer to all of your prayers. Becoming a Christian is a life of sacrifice and service. It's a life of giving up. It's a life of spiritual warfare. The real guns are not the threat, folks. The real threat is spiritual warfare. It's strongholds in our minds and in the minds of governments and peoples and and even makes its way inside the church and begins to corrupt. That's the danger. And we... The devil can do anything, he'll get your eyes off that and onto all the other stuff out there in our culture. And then you start thinking, oh my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? The sky is falling. No, it's not falling. Jesus is coming. And we are to be here, salt and light. So there's this difficulty, but it's navigable. We can understand. How do you do it? You live by faith, you trust. No matter when things are going good, you trust and you give praise to God. Thank you for this time of, of relative stability. And when things are going lousy, praise be to you, O Lord. I know that you're coming. I shall again behold your face. You see, the posture that God gives us in these discourses through our Lord Jesus and this, these metaphors of salt and light and all of that are powerful. They need to go down into our souls and we need to actually believe them. And say, you know, I believe this more than I believe the news. Right? A weak amen? Uh, Okay. I believe this. The news may or may not be lying to me. This will never lie. The pundits may or may not lie. This will never lie. Chuck may or may not lie. This will never lie. Dawson will never lie. No. I mean, come on, folks. 
the closer that your church and your pastors and your elders and you yourself are to the Word of God, the more ingrained that gets into you, it's not going to take you out and hunkering and bunkering. It's not going to make you aggressive and hateful towards the politicians or parties or whatever out there. It's not going to make you hateful toward Hollywood. It's going to make you more in love with Jesus Christ and your light, you will not be able to suppress who you are. You'll be a different kind of creature on this earth. And you know, pastors and priests and bishops and leaders throughout history have begged their congregations to do this. Dawson and I are begging you, listen. This is real. This could actually happen. It can happen in your heart and then you can take this out into your world, which is what he talks about here. Blessed and happy are these people. So I'm going to give you three things very fast. There's three things he's talking about with these metaphors of salt and light. One is integrity. The integrity of both salt and light. The necessity, which I've already talked about a little bit. And finally, the glory that he's redirecting us to. The glory, uh, which is Jesus, who is the true salt. Who is the real Light. So as you're looking through it, as he's talking about you, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, but not independently of the true salt, the true light, the one who, who fills you. You see, there's, when you become a believer, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled. And he doesn't go away and then come back, go away and come back. He's there. He's there for the long haul. And all he's asking his people, trust me. Will you trust me with this next minute, with this next day, with so on? So let's look first of all at integrity. This is the composition and the purpose of salt and life, uh, salt and light. They are inseparable. You know, integrity, integral, means that they can't be separated. It's It's like integers, right? Whole numbers that can't be divided. Does anybody know what they are? Does anyone know the first integer? Dear God in heaven. Number one. The only way that you can separate number one is to break it into pieces. Number one is a whole number, yes? Am I right? Am I not right? Did Wikipedia tell me wrong? <laughs> oh, you guys. Salt is Salt. They didn't understand all the chemical parts about salt, the sodium and the chloride and all that and how it all joins together. Salt is salt. It was a thing. And it was its own thing. There was no way to change salt into non-salt. Salt is salt. You could do things to salt so it wouldn't taste, but it's still salt. Same with light. What is light? Light is something. It's not nothing. Light is a substance. Scientists don't know if it's a wave or a particle. Maybe both. I don't know. But it is something. What is darkness? Say it. What is darkness? Nothing. Darkness is nothing. Light is something. This is what he's saying to you and to me. That there is a, an integrity into these metaphors of salt and light that he's using. Salt and light, both of them, are penetrating. They are intrusive. 
They are substantial. They're something, not nothing. They work from the outside in. You see, if you have a steak and you're gonna, you got your grill going and the steak is there, the salt, is, you, the salt doesn't just, oh, this needs salt, and so salt starts to come out of the meat. Well, that's crazy. You put the salt on top. You salt things. You, uh, you, know, you turn on a light switch in a room, whatever. It's something that has to come in, but then it doesn't just sit there. It moves out. Salt goes into the tissue of your steak. The light moves out from the filament of the bulb into the bulb and from the bulb out into the room and from the room into the corners and so on and so on. They work from the outside in, but then they work throughout. And what they are, listen carefully, this is so important. Here's the point Jesus is making. And I think because you've read, you know, we read these passages over and over all our lives if you've been in the church and you just, they don't have any meaning. Here's what he's saying. What they are, salt and light, and what they do cannot be separated. They are integral. There's not 50%, 50, but they're 100%, 100%, 100%, 100%. You are the light of the world. You don't carry it with you. You are it. Your life. You are the salt of the earth. And its purpose, salt and light, he uses these powerful illustrations, these metaphors, but salt and light are what? They are inanimate. In other words, they're not a, uh, a living thing. One is a mineral, the other is, like I said, it's a wave or a particle or whatever light is. But Jesus is applying them to you and I. He wants you to take what these are and apply them to yourself. Not that you have them, but that you are them. We are meant to be seen. Look at verse 13. In the earth, in the world, on a hill, verse 14, on a stand, verse 15, before others, among the Gentiles, that they may see. This is from 1 Peter and also 16. Their purpose of salt and light is to be seen, to be in, to be present, not to be over somewhere else or over here or off or whatever. They are to be involved in the world around us. I know it's, I know it's fear, scary. And gird your loin, folks. Getting more scary. Yeah? Any of you watching the news? I mean, we don't even know. A young boy uh, wore a t-shirt to school. I don't know if you saw this in the news. T-shirt said, I believe there are only two genders. They expelled him from school. Never mind that every other kid in the school can have any crazy t-shirt they want that says, you know, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. Whatever it is, it can say anything. Nobody will blink an eye. But say, here's what I believe as a Christian. I'm I'm not going to tamper with your business. You want to do your business, go do it. But your beliefs and your ways are not going to be tolerated. 
They're not tolerated. They didn't tolerate Jesus. And they're not going to tolerate us either. And that's just one little example, but probably the least of the examples, although it's getting a lot of attention. Oh, the world's falling apart. Our world is still much better than the world that Jesus was in or the Apostle Paul. Yes? Way, way better, way better. So, there was an extreme value to salt. You know the value to light, so I don't know if I really need to get in there. Salt was used for healing, for cleansing, for preserving food, which you know, for flavoring, brought out uh, more flavor. It didn't made, made, uh, it made things uh, like, like uh, carrots and spinach taste more like carrots and spinach. You say, well, why did you use that example? Couldn't you use ribeye steak? Well, yeah, I could have, but all right. Trying to help you parents with your kids and their vegetables. It was used to sustain moisture. I don't know if you remember when I I was a kid and we would go to to gym class, you know, the... Uh, I don't know if they even do that in school anymore, but they would give, you know, give us salt pills because we'd sweat too much. You'd pop a salt pill and you'd hold all that moisture in. And that, that's used to this day in some countries and climates. They use salt to preserve moisture. All right, you've got to sustain the moisture because what happens if you lose all your moisture? You become a mummy. You die. You, you can't survive. It's impossible. So the Greek, in the Greek is interesting. I'm sorry, I'm kind of, I'm a little fuzzy today. But when it says, if the salt has become tasteless or loses its savor, how will it be made salty again? The word tasteless is a very interesting Greek word. It's, it's actually the word that is used elsewhere for foolish. So salt is salt, salt is side on, on the other side, but in the middle of this tastelessness of salt, Jesus picked a word, and the writers of the New Testament picked a word that means foolish. In other words, salt, if it loses its savor, its ta- if it becomes insipid, if it becomes foolish, do you see what he's doing? He's trying to help you make the connections between you and salt. If we become foolish in our lives and in our evangelism, we become uh, worthless. And where do you think Christians, in the commentators and sermons, where do you think most Christians point to these two metaphors and apply them to us? Here's what they say. Listen carefully, folks. You better be salt because if you lose your savor, if you lose your tastiness, and you, you know, you're just good for nothing and you're going to get trampled under. And you better let your light shine. You better not cover that light. You better not do anything that would you know, put this light down. They, the, all that's what you hear. Even in the ancient commentaries, the patristic commentaries, there was this tendency to focus rather than on the integrity of salt, integrity of light, the disintegrity of the person that is that. And I think what Jesus, in fact, I read a couple of commentators that are not usually read, and they're saying that the very point is he's saying salt and light cannot 
be deluded or disturbed or overcome. You cannot overcome light. Oh, you can cover it up, but it's still there. You can't turn light into darkness. Why? Say it again. Because darkness is nothing. You can't take light and make it nothing. You can't take salt and make it foolish. It's indestructible. It's inseparable from its true self. And I want to ask you, if you're a believer, what is your true self? Is it this no good for nothing piece of junk and trash that God just holds His nose and kind of uses you like a pair of pliers or like a hammer or like a screwdriver? I'm just going to use you. When you die, I'm going to toss you away. No. He has taken the very essence of what we know He is and He's made you that. You don't become divine, but you are so closely related through the new birth to your Savior Jesus that you can and should and, and it's possible for us to perfectly represent Him. How in the world, Chuck, that's insane. No, it's not. You can perfectly represent Him. How? By trusting Him for your sakes with your good deeds, which we're going to talk about, and with your messed up life. People are craving for people to be, for others to be honest about themselves. What's wrong with you? Know what's wrong with the world? I'm wrong with the world. I'm not afraid of tra- the transgender movement, folks. That d- doesn't even cross my radar. And I have little grandchildren there in public school, and they're getting hammered. These little guys. That doesn't scare me. What scares me is a pulpit, a church. That it just isn't talking about Jesus and the light of the world and the gospel and the power and the integrity and the, the work of the Holy Spirit. All of those are what we need to know. And we need to be entering that ugly dark places and hard places with that armor fully on. Amen? Yes, of course. And then you can go and accurately be pushing back against uh, the craziness of our culture. The necessity... Life is not possible, you know this, without salt and life. Take the salt out of a human being and you, you can't retain water and you die. Take the, 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 put a person in a cave or in solitary confinement somewhere and they will die. We are the healing, the penetrating, the preserving. The Archbishop Templeton said the church is the only institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members. But when we get saved, we often do this thing called redemption and lift. Steve Childers called it redemption and lift. We get saved, we become Christians, and we start going to church and hanging around other Christians, and before too long, we, you could not name an unbeliever in your life. Maybe at work. How well do you know them? I don't know, I stay away. I don't want to get polluted. Really. Did you ever think maybe you would pollute them? No. Because why? Oh, because I, I'm, I'm... You know, the majority of people down there by the bridge and passing out water and stuff, what percentage do you think are Christians? 
whatever it is, it's not enough. There are good people down there that don't believe in Jesus at all. And they're out passing water, sharing food, getting them clothes, doing stuff. You know, the world is full of better people than you and I. Yes? It's full of people better than you and I. That's why we lose our children. We tell our children as they're growing up how evil and corrupt the world is. Then they get to college and they meet a friend who's gay or a transgender and those people are better than them and better than the people they grew up with in their church. Kinder, more understanding, more open. And we start immediately wringing our hands. Oh my God, my kids are getting affected by the world. The world's not affecting them. We did not tell them the truth. I'm not going to get an amen for that. Though I did. I told my kids the truth. Well, so did I. And uh, be happy to talk to you about that sometime. The ways that we communicate the gospel to our people, us, has been sorely wanting. Jesus saying, you are salt and light. This salt and light that you've been made is indestructible. It cannot be, the light cannot be put out. You, it can be, but not if, you're trust, not if you're a believer. See, the church is full of people that may not be believers. We have a litmus test. Do you know what it is? You laugh at the pastor's jokes. You say amen at the right places. No, the, the litmus test is your, your closeness to the person and work, what I told you, to the person and work of Jesus. It's not that hard. It's not a task that you're undertaking because, oh, if I don't do it, something to... No, you stay close to him and that light cannot be disturbed. That saltiness, that savor, that penetrating, life-giving substance cannot be diluted. So, let me finish with this, this glory, this idea of glory. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then in First Peter, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. Why would Jesus and Peter remind us of glory in light of these two metaphors of salt and light. Why would he do that? Because the, the glory of God is his substance. He is glorious, and glory is often represented by light or life. In the case of salt, life and savor, this penetrating power coming from God into a dark world. Jesus being the light of the world. So listen to what he said, the Apostle Paul says with respect to this, and then we'll close. If there is any encouragement in Christ, he's talking to the church, to us people, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy Complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Here you're hearing the Beatitudes now. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, this, this way of thinking in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count, count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. In other words, he let that go and emptied himself. Uh, better, probably a better translation would be he, he enshrouded himself or he covered himself and closed himself by taking on the form of a servant. You see, the glory is still there. It was in there. The light, the saltiness, still there. But Jesus covered it with humility as he entered this world. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. And you read in the rest, we don't have time, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Anyone that says that and lives for that and participates in that, now you are becoming salt and light. Why? He's salt and light. And you are in him, he's in you. I hope you'll trust him, will you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us. We know this is, uh, we don't know how to navigate these waters, but uh, we know that they are navigable, and we pray that you would help us and give us wisdom. In Christ's name, amen.